My name is Gabrielle Flynn. I have a background in ecology and science communication. I am unwaveringly obsessed with the natural world and therefore chose a career path which led me to working in nature conservation. I get great personal satisfaction from doing this work because I love being outside and learning about the natural world, but also because I want to focus my time and energy on something bigger than me. Planet Earth is biodiverse and full of things to discover and be in awe of, and I enjoy spending my time doing just this. Biodiverse and biodiversity are words we're going to use a lot of on this podcast, so I'll start by introducing it as a concept. Biodiversity is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as the existence of a large number of different kinds of animals and plants which make a balanced environment. The word biodiversity describes the great variety of life that is found on Earth today. Life began on Earth 4.5 billion years ago, and since this time, it's evolved and adapted to live in every nook and cranny on Earth, whether it be the bacterial mats that grow on the edge of steaming geysers, or the tube worms that live in the deepest oceans, the howler monkeys that scream through the lush Amazon rainforest, or the beavers that busily make new ponds in our very own countryside in Scotland. No matter how dry the desert or how freezing cold the tundra, life has found a way to evolve and thrive in a great variety of environments that exist on Earth. All these living things have been evolving together through time and they have formed complex and intricate relationships with each other. Flowers have evolved to attract pollinators such as bees to help them reproduce. Fruits attract birds and mammals so their seeds can be spread far and wide. Fungi grow in our soils and help life to communicate and function as a community. Human beings are just another life form that has evolved and is occupying space on Earth. One of our roles within the community of life used to be as a top predator, something that helps keep life and ecosystems in balance. In turn, life feeds us, shelters us, gives us clean water and medicines. As our species developed and journeyed around the Earth, we learned and adapted. This learning and adapting meant that we could be inspired to create, innovate and utilise nature's bounties to a greater extent. This was and is only because life is biodiverse and because beautifully complex and intricate systems were able to evolve. Humans were and are part of nature and without the systems we've evolved with, we would perish. Biodiversity is necessary for human existence. However, as our cultural, agricultural, economic and political systems have arisen in this fraction of a moment in Earth's history, they have come to overshadow our relationship with life. We have come to be biodiversity's biggest destroyer, with human beings now being considered responsible for an ongoing mass extinction event. Humans who are once an important part of the circle of life have become destructive to ourselves and the majority of life on Earth. We are currently the asteroid heading towards our Earth. We know this though. We have the ability to communicate, study and learn. We know the problems we've created and with that knowledge we can make choices. Some humans are already making the choice to sustain life for now and the future. A growing number of people are choosing to be restorers of balance and to imagine a future on a healthy and resilient planet for our species and all other life. These individuals are leading the way, and through this podcast, we plan to shine a light on the path they are forging.
My name's Gabrielle Flynn. And I'm James Sylvie. And this is Outdoing. That was that was really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. It, as I was kind of listening to you talking about, you know, starting from like the history on Earth and talking about, you know, biodiversity in general, it made me think that for, you know, we often hear that biodiversity, the system of biodiversity kind of relies on all these little bits all working together and it's, you know, it hangs in the balance and, and it does. But none of these species are doing it for other species. They're all doing it for selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the systems that we have in place that we rely on so much, like pollination, the bee doesn't pollinate the flower because it wants more flowers. The bee pollinates the flower because it wants to feed the pollen to its young. You know, the last thing that the plant wants is for its pollen to be fed to a bee larva. It wants its pollen to go to a, another flower. And so all these systems that seem to be so kind of almost designed (laughs) uh but you know like relying on each other in such intricate ways and they do they're based on you know a species own selfish desires and how they want to interact and the only reason that they mesh together and work together so well is because they've they've existed for such immense lengths of time and these species are adaptable you know the the climate change has changed and does change you know species come and go that that is nature the speed of change that mm. humans are enacting on the natural world is completely unprecedented and just to kind of put that into perspective i guess because we find it very difficult to think of long periods of time because we're only on the planet for like 75 80 years so when i was a kid uh the you know you, uh, at school in england you learn about the kings and queens of england mm-hmm. so bear with me here gabby right <laughs> and so that goes back for to william the first which is 1066 so that isn't even a thousand years ago mm-hmm. and the history that has happened you know our own selfish little history that we're interested in in those thousand years is incredible mm-hmm. from a mother earth point of view and life on earth a thousand years is nothing mm-hmm. it is absolutely nothing and so the changes that some species will have adapted to previously that might have taken 10,000 years, 20,000, 30,000 years to, to happen, we're doing them in a lot of cases in the last 70 years. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that speed of change is just insane. So I know there's a lot of people who maybe think, well, you know, climate change is mm-hmm. natural you know, extinction is natural. The speed is not natural. Mm-hmm. That is what is really driving the loss of biodiversity. Species cannot adapt. Even the fastest breeding species on the planet cannot adapt to what we are doing no. to it. This is Outdoing Podcast. It's a podcast about nature's doers, the people who are out there actually helping fight the biodiversity crisis, who are trying to turn it around for nature. And it's about what they do. What, what is conservation? What is involved in saving nature? How do we save nature? How can you save nature? Every week we're going to give you a single thing that you can do to help the environment because the world is full of too much information and we want to break that down for you. We, we, we want to take that burden, do the research and just tell you one single thing that you can do every episode to improve the fortunes of the natural world and the human species. We're also going to take you out with us 
we're going to go and look for some cool stuff sometimes. We're going to go and do the conservation work that we do because we are two nature conservationists. And we're going to let you into our world so that you can see what is actually involved in trying to, to save nature from all the many threats that it's currently facing. We're going to be meeting, as Gabby had said, the, the people who are, who are doing the conservation, who are trying to, you know, to stop the biodiversity crisis, however small, you know, or however localised, they're wanting to reverse that or do their bit. And mm -hmm. they're, they're nature's doers, you know, they're the people who are on the ground doing the work and that's who we want to introduce you to. Mm -hmm. I really like that name for them as well. I was trying to think of a name for those people, but they really are just nature's doers. Yeah, I think that's quite a Scottish term as well, so it fits quite well. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want donors, we want doers. Exactly. Definitely don't want donors. <laughs> um, we also want to reach people who right now don't have a platform. So, I mean, most conservationists right, right now don't really have much of a platform, but we really want to reach people that don't have a platform and really, really need a platform because they're doing amazing work. Some people in conservation are even under threat whether it's because people don't like that they're saving nature because it's threatening industry, whether they're living in a, in a part of the world that's more dangerous. We, we really want to reach out to as many kind of conservationists as possible. So if you're listening to this and you can think of an, of a, an amazing nature doer who needs a platform, who needs to tell their story, then please get in touch with us and, and tell us about them so that we can give them the time and space to do that. Yeah, it'd be great. Mm. Absolutely. Tell us your history of how you ended up being involved in nature conservation. Yeah, it's it's always been animals and nature for me. Like I can't ever remember a time where I was interested in anything else. Um, uh, yeah, like I remember one of the kind of memories that my mom has of me when I was very young. They took we went camping in the south of France, I think it was. And they lost me and didn't know where I was. And when they finally found me, I was at a wood ant nest. Right yeah, and I was sticking sticks into wood ant nests and was just like, I must have only been about three and a half, something like that. And I was just completely enthralled at the way that they were kind of going up the sticks and biting my fingers That's and so stuff. Cool. So, yeah, it's just always been that. And, yeah, as a kid, you don't really realise what opportunities are available to you. So... You know, you watch David Attenborough, you think, right, well, I can either be David Attenborough, a farmer or a vet. And I, I pretty much went through all of them and then worked at a vet's for a while and realised, yeah, the only problem with being a vet is all you see is sick animals. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was like, but yeah, I don't want to see sick animals. I want to work with healthy animals. Mm -hmm. um, and then realised that, yeah, there was a there was a job in conservation. It did exist. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. this mythical thing. I know for a lot of people it still is, you know, a mythical thing that they, they try and strive for. Um, but yeah, that's what I set my, my goals on. Did zoology at university and kind of worked my way up from the bottom like we all have. You know, everyone's got that story. Um, and yeah, finally got my job in conservation. Can you can you tell the listeners what your job as a conservationist has involved so far? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really involved in species conservation. So, you know, uh, through this podcast, we'll be talking to people um, who are involved in habitat restoration, you know, big scale stuff, um, ecosystem services, that kind of thing. And my side is more kind of, some might even say old fashioned, but the kind of the true and tested species conservation. So working kind of uh, in a very focused way for particular species. So the really rare stuff working to kind of preserve them within the wider environment. 
So yeah, my day-to-day job is uh, developing conservation projects for species. Um, so for example, we've worked on uh, projects down in the Solway for Nasjak toads, up in the Cairngorms on rare invertebrates, um, uh, a project that's working across uh, islands and coasts across the whole of Scotland. Uh, and the other side of it is also policy because you know, <clears throat> for a lot of species, the conservation is getting your hands dirty and doing practical stuff. So for example, for Nasjak toads, that might be habitat creation. But for other species, it's actually about um, changing policy. It's changing attitudes towards species or changing legislation that can actually really improve conservation. Um, and that's kind of the really unsexy part of conservation. And it's probably the bit that people know the least about. But to be honest, it's probably the area where you can make the most gains. Mm-hmm. Because if you can change policy, if you can change government policy towards a particular species, for example, if you could change it so that there was um, funding for farmers to farm in a particular way that benefited skylarks, for example, that could be rolled out across the whole country and could have a massive benefit for skylarks, far greater than if you just had a nature reserve where you were you know, helping skylarks in a really local way. So, yeah, policy is probably the area where you can sometimes make the most gains for biodiversity. So you've been involved in lots of different projects that you named... But what have those projects actually been about? Have they been about monitoring or creating habitat for species? Or have they been about, like, yeah, what what have they actually done to help nature? It really varied, to be honest. It depends on the species. So for some, it's literally about habitat creation. Um, we might already know what it is that we want to do for a particular species, and it's just about getting on and doing it. So in the case of natterjack toads that I just mentioned, it's about digging ponds you know that's what it's really about um and then for other species it might be more about the monitoring side of things because we just simply don't know enough about them um that's particularly true of invertebrates which are you know quite a under-recorded taxa um at the best of times um so for a lot of them it's really just about increasing the knowledge and finding out what areas they use you know <clears throat> particularly when it comes to invertebrates sometimes we don't even know what the food plant is for, for these animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds almost ludicrous, especially you know when you think about our birds and mammals where we know so much about them. And in Britain as a whole, you know, we've got such a rich uh, history of naturalists that we know so much about the natural environment. But there's loads of um, invertebrates out there and, and you know species in general that we just know absolutely nothing. And yeah, so it's really starting from square one for some of these things. And for our non ecological listeners what is taxa and what is food plant ah did i just kind of fall into the black hole of just kind of talking a bit jargony yeah yeah so taxa what is taxa so uh, i guess uh, the most basic way of saying it is it's a group of organisms so um that might be for example um flies it might be spiders it might be ants you know that's it's a it's a shorthand way of saying a group of particular species um, and food plant is something that um, an organism feeds on. So, for example, if you uh, have a, a really scruffy part of your garden where there's nettles growing, well, that might attract things like small tortoiseshells or peacocks because their food plant is nettles. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> I guess I'll go next. It's your turn. My name's Gabrielle Flynn. I was born and brought up in Scotland. I'm half Maltese, half Scottish. I got into zoology or got into nature conservation because I also as a child was just absolutely obsessed with animals and 
had this like innate empathy for the natural world even when I was a kid and so when I was about six years old I asked a family member I can't even remember which one now but what can I do with like what can I do as a job when I grow up that's to do with animals and like you the obvious ones of vet and well I think just vet came up and then I was kind of like Neh. and like not not there's anything wrong with vets vets are really important I've needed vets for pets that I've really cared about but I I I really cared about the natural world not necessarily like pets and livestock and, and other animals that we might look after I really cared about wild animals and the nature that we relate to and the nature that we rely on obviously not thinking about it that complex away when I was six years yeah, old wow that's that's impressive you've gone deep <laughs> yeah. at a very young age I was yeah, <laughs> I was a very deep thinker as child <laughs> somebody said zoologist and I was like what is a zoologist and they're like well somebody that studies animals and I was like well that sounds amazing that's what I really want to do and I did go through the phase in high school of I went I went and worked on farms went and worked in vets because becoming a vet is the more is considered the more economically sensible career path to go down <laughs> yeah, very well put <laughs> <laughs> but then I ended up going to do zoology as my undergrad and the second like the second I walked into that lecture theater in my first week and started learning about evolution and biology and just the, the natural world in lots of different ways, I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to do zoology. I don't, I don't want to do anything else because it's just, it was just so fascinating. And that like, love that I had for the natural world turned into like, just total fascination with it. So yes, then I did zoology. I got a lucky chance to go study leafcutter ants as my honours project fell in love with ants and was like how come nobody's ever told me about ants before because you just don't learn about insects you just learn about all the trendy animals yeah even in even when you're doing your degree you're still learning about the anyway well i was going to ask that actually so um did you feel that the zoology degree kind of scratched the itch that you had for kind of wanting to learn about conservation and the the style of conservation and that you wanted to do no. no, I like, I barely, I, don't, I think we barely learned about conservation. Mm. I like, I don't think, I think most people didn't even consider that it was a path you could go down. Everybody wanted to work with animals, but nobody really knew how. And, and I, like, I always had this, like, feeling I need to, I, I just, like, absolutely have to be involved in helping turn these problems around because... Once you know that the state that the world that the world is in and the and the direction it's going in, how can you not how can you not want to be involved in trying to stop that? Like it's it's almost like you've you've learned something bad is happening. How could like you're culpable if you don't get involved in stopping it happening? Anyway, then I went on to do science communication for a bit and then did bumblebee stuff during my masters and then eventually managed to get my first job in conservation after a couple of internships and, and volunteering etc and yeah I think like you have to be you have to be very resilient to work in conservation because you're hearing if, if, if nature is the love of your life then you're like hearing constantly about all the bad things that are happening to it and there's just a like a million bad things happening to it like it's got multiple cancers attacking it 
There's, there's, a, there's a quote that I'm going to absolutely butcher here, and I can't even remember who it says it, but it's essentially along the lines of, the only problem about learning about ecology is then your eyes are open to you know the state of the world and you know you can never kind of put that back in the box so you know for example where a lot of people might go to somewhere like the yorkshire moors and think oh wow you know they're they're bleak that you know I, I don't know why bleak is ever a positive term but you know they often refer to it as bleak and you know beautiful and stark and i, I just see it as uh, yeah a, a wasteland a monoculture you know it's it's not something that i look at and think yeah this is how the landscape should look and mm. that's because you know i've i've seen how landscapes can look and and it it's not like that and, mm-hmm. and the biodiversity benefits of having a restored landscape far outweigh you know well i could i could go down a rabbit warren but we're talking about <laughs> the land uses there but yeah you get what i mean it's um, that was very controlled you, yeah thanks uh well it's episode one um <laughs> Yeah, once you kind of learn about something, you, you also learn what's wrong with it. Um, and so mm-hmm. that can sometimes, you, you're always fighting. Like, it, conservation is a fight mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um, and it's a fight we're losing because yeah. biodiversity is, is declining. And it's declining at a rate that we haven't seen, you know, since the last extinction, which killed off the dinosaurs. That's, that's scary. Yeah, it's really scary. What the beauty of this podcast will be mm-hmm. is that it will say to people look the people who are working on biodiversity and what biodiversity actually means they're not like some i'm going to use a, a, a phrase i hate but they're not some like bunny hugging hemp wearing you know like hippie and all the horrible stereotypes that some people have in their mind they're just ordinary people who are just really passionate about um conservation and about species and for a lot of the the people that we're going to speak to in this podcast they don't even work in conservation. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll work uh, on a, in a day-to-day job. They might be a work in HR. And then when they go home at night, you know, then they transform and turn into, you know, the person who looks at river flies or, you know, mm-hmm. briar fights or, you know, that's that's what we're trying to get across here. It's it's mm-hmm. about meeting people who do amazing things and, and learning a little bit about them. Yeah. And I think, like, I think that's what, that's what I really wanted to achieve. I think I think what I, the the train of thought I was going down there was, I'm seeing how the world is responding to all these headlines of, all these headlines of, um, we're on red alert for climate change, like we've got we've got now eight years left in that window of time where we need to turn it around for climate change, and they're just constantly hearing these horrendous horrendous things. And it doesn't, and it's not making their brain engage because if it was making their brain engage, then we'd be freaking acting faster. Mm. And we're not acting faster, even though we know how many species are going extinct. David Attenborough is spelling it out to us how bad things are for nature. I mean, now he is. Mm. Um, people still aren't acting, and 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 I think that what we need to do as well as telling people the reality of the situation, is that we also need to say, but there's these individual, like, miraculous humans who are dedicating all this, dedicating their lives, or at least part of their lives, to trying to fix the problems that you're hearing about. There are people out there who are heroically trying to turn it around, and they need attention, they need more resources, they need a platform. They need people to know about them because 
David Attenborough is incredible, and yes, he is a god to all conservationists and zoologists, etc. And mm-hmm. Greta Thunberg is also amazing in her own way and, and what she's done for raising awareness about climate change. But there's absolute legends on the ground who are out there doing the stuff that needs to be done. And through this podcast, we are going to shout about those people and hopefully inspire others to get involved and make them feel empowered and realise that they can also do something about the problem and that it's not hopeless and that we can't ever believe that it's hopeless because if because if we believe it's hopeless then we won't try we're on the wrong yeah, side yeah, yeah. You're, you're on the side of the oil companies if you think it's hopeless because you're just giving in to them or you're on the side of the people who are destroying the amazon rainforest because you're just being like oh, there's nothing i can do about you so yeah yeah and and what we will do as well of course is celebrate the successes because you know there have been some amazing successes like uh, the place where I grew up in, in Yorkshire um, was like semi-rural but completely surrounded by really intensive agriculture and I remember I was 14 before I saw a bird of prey it was a sparrowhawk uh, I, I remember the, the moment vividly like I must have been maybe 16 before I saw a buzzard and now oh. like when I go home and, and visit friends you know you see buzzards all over the place there's mm-hmm. red kites you know the in those in those instances, you know, we have had some major successes, even in just my lifetime, and I'm only 37. So, you know, the, there are successes to be celebrated, um, but we have to be aware that there are, you know, also real challenges and some horrendous declines that have happened as well, um, so even in our lifetime as well. You know, just from the 90s to now, you know, the decline in things like uh, moths and flying insects has been absolutely unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's important not to get kind of weighed down by the negativity and really take the opportunity to celebrate the successes of them when they come around, but mm. also to kind of be realistic about the situation that we're in. Absolutely. And you reminded me when you when you spoke about how some people's day job isn't being a conservationist necessarily. Uh, in twenty twenty, when the pandemic first started, um, I was working on a project which was assessing the extinction risk of hoverflies, which are important pollinators. But we'll get into that in a later episode. And I was working with people who were working in healthcare by day, so they were literally fighting the pandemic by day. And then they'd go home at night and start assessing the extinction risk of hoverfly species in Europe. By day, they were fighting pandemic. By night, they were fighting the biodiversity yeah, crisis. That's a hero. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and it was just insane the amount of hours. They were just like literally fighting the biggest fires all at once and still doing it with a smile on their face. Mm, that's impressive. That was our first episode. We really hope you enjoyed listening to Outdoing and we're excited to see you next time. Yeah, on our next episode, we'll be interviewing Anthony McCluskey. And then we've got some exciting beaver chat coming up where hopefully Gabby will see her first wild beaver in Scotland. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. Our first bit of advice for the first episode is for you to download the app Seek, spelt S-E-E-K, and to go out and take pictures of five trees or plants that you don't know the name of and to find out their name. The reason this is good for conservation is one, It teaches you something new and it engages you with the outdoors. But also, that data that you collect goes into important monitoring schemes that help conservation happen. So go out, have some fun, find out something new.
Undoing is presented by Gabrielle Flynn and James Sylvie. It's produced and edited by Gabrielle Flynn. The opening track is Frenzy of the Meeting by Brebach. Brebach have just produced a brand new album called FAS. FAS is inspired by environmental awareness, renewables and conservation, but also they took care to try and be sustainable in the production of the album. The closing track is Back to the Woods by Jason Shaw. Spot on. Okay. Sounds good. I'm gonna listen. <laughs> good. good. You're gonna have to. <laughs>